Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Next Picture Show listeners. Are you in Chicago? Are you a little tired of listening to our disembodied voices and ready to actually see those voices come out of our faces? If so, you should come see us record live at the Chicago Podcast Festival on November 19th. We'll be at the Steppenwolf 1700 Theater, which is a fairly small, intimate venue, at 10 p.m. on Saturday night. And we'll be doubled up with the folks from the Booth One Podcast, so you get twice as much podcasting action for your dollar. Tickets are available at chicagopodcastfestival.org. We'll be trying a different, livelier format and trying to get you involved, too. So we hope to see you there. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. Here in The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we hit the road, Jack, and we come back with a lot of thoughts about The Other America, the one where indie movie characters go to express their loneliness and rootlessness and to find themselves in a place far away from home. As Simon and Garfunkel once sang, we've all come to look for America, and we're looking for it in a pair of road movies about underprivileged outsiders and the dreams that keep them hustling from place to place. Genevieve, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've heard the chimes at midnight. Yes, and I know that we who steal do so at midnight, but we who discuss films professionally want to talk about where that chimes reference came from and why it's significant to the 1991 movie My Own Private Idaho. Writer-director Gus Van Sant had already had a major breakthrough in 1989 with Drugstore Cowboy when he made My Own Private Idaho, an indie road movie that's a little bit punk, a little bit western, a little bit surrealist fantasy, and a whole lot road movie. Van Sant's story takes an episodic look at two street hustlers, the narcoleptic Mike, played by River Phoenix, and the slumming rich boy Scott, played by Keanu Reeves at the beginning of his career. They both have significant family problems, and they eventually take to the road to try to solve Mike's issues, while Scott's wait for him at home. 
The troubled home lives, the dreamy quality of the story, and Mike's desperate crush on Scott all came to mind when we saw American Honey, the new road movie from Andrea Arnold, the British director of Fish Tank and Red Road. In Arnold's movie, a young Texas woman named Star, played by first-time actress Sasha Lane, lets herself get seduced into joining a group of magazine subscription sellers who travel from town to town in a crowded van. It's an escape of sorts, but it comes with plenty of its own problems, linked both to life on the road and to the people managing the crew. Both films literally take us for a ride, in a series of chapters that don't always connect, but that lead to some thoughts about growing up, moving on, and claiming some kind of personal identity. Van Sant's movie is a little more beholden to Shakespeare, and Arnold's is a little more influenced by rap, but both films trade in cultural connections and expectations, and then the adaptability and energy of young people trying to survive. There's not another road anywhere that looks exactly like these two roads, so we're going to take a ride down them together. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, Mike. How long have I been here on this street, on this crusade? Oh, well, I came back to town around three and a half years ago, and that's when I met you, so it's, it's, been, it's been three years, Mike. Yeah, almost four years. That's a long time. What I'm getting at, Mike, is that we're still alive. Yeah. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly obvious. <laughs> they can drop a big old bomb in this city. You know what we would do? Take shelter. My Own Private Idaho was one of those long-tail projects that kicked around in its creator's head for a long time in a lot of different shapes and sizes before it finally made it to the screen in the form we saw in 1991. Gus Van Sant was a commercial director, making his own film experiments on the side, when he directed his debut, 1986's Malanoche, about a gay store clerk and his crush on a younger Mexican man. As an openly gay filmmaker, Van Sant was particularly interested in gay stories and in young men on the fringes of society. By the time he made that film, he was already developing My Own Private Idaho as a mishmash of multiple ideas he'd had, one based on Shakespeare, about a street hustler based on Prince Hal and Henry IV, one about two hustlers on a journey of discovery, and a third about a young hustler being kept by an older German man. You can see in the final script how these stories merged into something episodic with elements of all three previous stories. But in 1991, gay life and street life weren't remotely close to mainstream culture, and Van Sant couldn't get anyone interested in funding the project until he had a major hit with his second film, Drugstore Cowboy. At that point, New Line Cinema took an interest in his work. But his backers wanted him to cut the Shakespeare elements and the surrealism out of My Own Private Idaho and make it into a much more conventional road movie. Van Sant stuck to his guns, given that he'd already repeatedly revised the script, and we're left with something fairly unique, a dreamy picture that mirrors the fractured state of mind of the protagonist, who passes out in stressful situations and loses time both to narcolepsy and to the dreams that consume him when he's out. There are a lot of legends around my own private Idaho about how Keanu Reeves drove 2,000 miles on a motorcycle to deliver the script to River Phoenix, whose agent didn't want him to see it, or about how the two of them hung out with hustlers on the streets of Portland to research the role, with Phoenix taking drugs and experimenting with gay sex, while Reeves took a much more distanced approach. There are a lot of fun, strange stories about how Van Sant and Phoenix badgered director William Reichert into taking the role of Bob, the indigent Falstaff character who lords over the homeless community in Portland. 
but all the stories pale in comparison to the actual movie, which veers in and out of reality, hops to a different country, and operates both as a stagey, removed update of Shakespeare and as a street docudrama where talking head characters tell their worst street stories directly to the camera. Above all, though, it's about the journey Mike and Scott take looking for Mike's mother, each of them having a different agenda in mind. So what do you guys make of My Own Private Idaho? What were your experiences with it? I mean, I think it's extraordinary. I mean, I think it holds up really well. But in the context of the time, there was really nothing quite like it. I mean, we had gay cinema. It was sort of when did Poison come? Did Poison come Poison out? Poison was around the it was nineteen ninety, I believe. Right, so. right around the same time. I mean, there wasn't a lot of it, and certainly not at this level. And it was just a trip into a different world. And and there was a poetry to the filmmaking that was new. Yeah, and River Phoenix's performance is really kind of what gets to me that then and now. You know, his death certainly casts a different light on the movie, but even without it, the idea of him as being this extraordinarily vulnerable person. I mean, I kind of compare him to like a, a turtle without a shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he has narcolepsy. He gets stressed out and he falls asleep. And wherever he lands, anybody can do anything to him. And he, Scott is somebody who offers him a certain amount of protection. But when he goes away, then what does he got? You know, I mean, he's just really, you, you talk about characters on the fringes. I mean, he's right there. He's right on the precipice. And I just feel like his vulnerability and his desire are so raw I, I just find the film, I, the tenderness of the film, the, the, the personal nature of the film, the texture of the film, it's just, it, it really gets to me. I, I, I love it so much. Yeah, I think it's terrific too. And, and, you know, I do remember when it came out and how it was kind of subversive that River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves were, who were, were stars, but also, you know, teen idols to a certain degree at the time were cast in this film. It got a lot of attention. It probably got a lot more viewers than would have seen it otherwise. Probably viewers like my high school friends and I who watched it on VHS at some point and might not have seen it otherwise. And it's it's completely eye-opening. Like, I think... This is maybe a certain degree of naivete on, on my part as a teenager, but this whole world of street hustling, of, of being gay and turning tricks and, and that being like a, a world unto itself was something I'd never seen before. Yeah, there's a, actually a great story about how, I mean, this this is was from Interview Magazine. River Phoenix apparently, right before they shot the sex scene with Udo Kier, uh, River Phoenix apparently kind of verbally poked Keanu Reeves and said, you know, you've got 10 million fans who are going to pause on this scene a lot. And it apparently really unnerved Keanu Reeves and really messed with the uh, dynamics of the scene. And Gus Van Sant, like took River Phoenix to the woodshed afterwards and like really yelled at him about just basically messing with Reeves' head. But yeah, I mean, you guys just had such a reputation at the time. And they were certainly aware that it was potentially career danger to get into this film. But they were also both (laughs) young and at a, a point in their lives where they wanted to do dangerous stuff. And they both felt that this was exciting, I guess, exciting and dangerous and out on the edge. Genevieve, what's, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to like out myself as being very ignorant about my own private Idaho going into it. I, you know, this movie came out when I was far too young to like have it on my radar. And I really only knew it by reputation. Like I knew it by name and River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves are street hustlers. And that's like kind of that's where my knowledge of the movie ended. And I had no frame of reference for this abstracted style that I was getting into with this movie. And I kind of wish I had before I started watching it because I was really thrown for the first probably third of this movie just trying to kind of get on its wavelength. And once I did, like, oh, I'm seeing like kind of a borderline 
experimental movie here. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of a little easier to just like settle in for the ride. But there was a lot of like mental resistance of trying to place a narrative onto this movie that really does not invite a traditional narrative framework in a lot of ways. I, I think it helps if someone taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, it's based in part on Henry the Fourth. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's a huge help. Yeah. And that that's the other thing is like, I did know that there was a Shakespearean element to it going in. But it, it's confusing. Like it's in, I guess we can talk about the Shakespearean element now. It, it, like it's integrated in a very odd way in that it just kind of like becomes a flat out Shakespearean adaptation for maybe 20 minutes and then it stops, you know, like Scott and Bob are still Prince Hal and Falstaff, you know, kind of vaguely. But like there's a segment there where they are basically speaking Shakespearean language. Is, mm-hmm. is it direct quote from the text? I'm looking at you. Some, some of it's modified. The credit in the, in the closing credits is additional dialogue by William Shakespeare. Yeah. Which is <laughs> one of the most amusing. But I mean, some of it is, is close to it and then not quite. It, yeah, it's, it's interesting the way it's like kind of plopped in there and and then sort of abandoned and but I really liked that scene and I I'm still processing this film guys help me <laughs> was this the first time you'd seen it yes I mean if nothing else I've kind of imagined that seeing it today is just a really different experience because the film was so so celebrated and got so much attention for the campfire scene mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves says you know men can't love each other and River Phoenix says yes they can and I mean that was really out there at the time it was there are a lot of gay kids who watched that and who came to Van Sant like over the course of the next couple of decades and said you know that made me come out that changed Mm -hmm. my life because it was something that they had literally never seen in media before yeah and it's it's interesting because I could tell watching that like oh like this was probably a pretty quintessential moment in gay cinema and I was watching this movie with my roommate who is gay and we were fairly far into it before he was like, wait, is this a gay movie? <laughs> and, and like, he, he is a pretty engaged culture consumer, but it, it was like not on his radar as a gay man. And he's younger. He's in his like 20s. He's, so, the, he's the age of the character. Yeah, exactly. So it, I, I was kind of struck by the way that, you know, this thing that was clearly pointed and a little subversive in its time, it maybe kind of just faded out of the consciousness of a younger generation of gay men. Well, but I mean, I think there is a little bit of distance that, that Scott is responsible for in that mm-hmm. scene, though. I mean, that he, he is putting up this wall that Mike is trying to traverse un- unsuccessfully, though they do have, I think, there is a moment of intimacy there that is moving in its own right. But, oh, I think uh, that scene is it's wonderful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. I just, that scene, I mean, that's the scene of the movie, I think, really. And it just, mm-hmm. For it, all I, the stylistic flourishes, just the camera holding on them for that long scene of dialogue. Is, yeah. is, is, and that's is, one of those. I know you striking. hate extra textual, Scott, but Phoenix <laughs> wrote that scene. Van Sant had it as a, a like a really brief sort of aside. It was never meant to be a, a big deal. Yeah, I, think I, heard, I think I read that. Yeah. yeah. And Phoenix said, you know, this needs to be fleshed out. He needs to tell you who he is. And he, he wrote the whole scene. And that scene makes the movie. I'd like to talk with you. I mean, I'd like to uh, really talk with you. I mean, we're talking right now, but, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like I can be. I don't feel like I can be close to you. I mean, we're close. Right now, we're close, but I mean, you know. Uh, how close? I mean. I don't know. Whatever. What? What do I mean to you? What do you mean to me? 
Mike, you're my best friend. I know, man. I know, I know, I know I'm your friend. We're good friends, and it's good to be, you know, good friends. That's a good thing. So? So I just... That's okay. We can be friends. Have sex with a guy for money. Yeah, I know. And two guys can't love each other. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, for me, I could love someone even if I, you know, wasn't paid for it. Not, not to dwell on it, because we could just spend the whole podcast, but, but just watching this, I just sort of, you know, you, you mourn for the performances you didn't get from River Phoenix. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's it's just a remarkable Because yeah, he was still, I mean, he was still, the rawness of him as a talent was, uh, does not hurt this film in any way, but he's somebody who could have developed into to an even greater actor mm-hmm. than, he, than he shows in this movie. Though, I, I don't know, I really love him in Dogfight and Running on Empty. He was, he was good. He seems a little less comfortable with the Shakespearean dialogue than others. <laughs> well, he was also, he was a parent, I mean, for First of all, he had no Shakespearean experience, right. which Reeves did have. But second of all, he was uncomfortable with it in the movie. Like he didn't think it belonged. He actually argued with Van Sant about it. <laughs> he and he was the he was really adamant that there should be a really strong stylistic divide between the Shakespeare stuff and his what he called his docudrama stuff. He he felt that those things needed to be stylistically separated. I'm not sure why, like to let to let audiences know, okay, now we're we're back in whatever passes for reality in this film. I mean, watching this film, I don't mourn for him as an actor nearly as much as I mourn for him as a writer, as a like a potential writer, director, mm. creator. Like he showed a lot of talent here for for creating a character and for devoting himself to his craft. On the other hand, he was apparently hugely methody in a way that was not physically healthy, given some of yeah. the things that he did. I, you know, I would also credit Van Sant for setting a whole whole lot of context for scenes like the campfire scene to come through. All this business with his, his home, home movie footage that that we're flashing back to that may or may not be, you know, real, I guess, or remembered precisely. There's a context that Van Sant is setting up. The other th- point about the film generally about the way to watch it and take it in is my own private idea is a good example of the advantages of the road movie as a genre which because the idea of a road movie is you can travel to a lot of different places and a lot of random things can happen and you just get moments and you get little flourishes i mean we talked you talked about like this sex scenes in the movie you know the idea to do do them all in these sort of frozen tableaus Mm -hmm. i mean that's the that's just a flourish or you can have individual scenes like you know mike role-playing as a as as, as a what a dutch 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 cleaning right Mm -hmm. right scrubber boy and just that that whole scene feels like it's you know lifted from a David Lynch movie. Oh um, yeah! Oh my gosh! There's so much David Lynch. There in this really film. is. There, and Grace Zabriskie is in this one too. Grace Zabriskie and the the sequence with Udo Kier uh, doing his German cabaret act, which apparently he actually did German cabaret, and that was a song that he did in German cabaret, and they he just gets stuck it. Writing credit for it too. They apparently he originally did it with a blue flashlight, <laughs> and Van Sant said, "This looks too much like blue velvet. We can't do this." But it, it it's made so me, good with the giant lamp though I, like it makes it more unsettling <laughs> i know it's so creepy but it, it it made me go hmm 
I wonder how many, I can't remember how many films Udo Kier and David Lynch did together. And I looked it up and was like, is the IMDb missing like three or four projects? They've never worked together. Yeah. I mean, they've never, like, Lynch has never directed something with Kier in it. And that's so hard to believe. He would fit right in. He absolutely He's would. He's the only person not in this Twin Peaks revival, apparently. <laughs> the only true. person in the world. Udo Kier or Jim Belushi? Let's go with Belushi. <laughs> I mean, I shot my cameo last week. I don't yeah. know about you guys. <laughs> Mine's coming up in two weeks. Well, speaking to that, the way the film consists of all of these like different parts, the surreal dream sequences and the road sequences, the Shakespeare sequences, like the fuzzed out home movie stuff, the really artful thing, weird things like the, the magazine covers conversing with each other. Mm-hmm. Are there elements that you guys think work better than others or that don't work at all? I kind of like the mismatch of it, to be honest, I think it really ends up making it a more interesting film. I never feel like I'm watching anything but a cohesive vision, despite all the different approaches. And part of it, I think, is that the performances and these characters carry it so well. And these two are very good in this film. I, I, I think culturally, we decide every five years whether or not Keanu Reeves is a good actor or not. <laughs> I, I, really? I, there's, a, there's a debate about that? I like, I like Keanu Reeves. I like him in this movie a lot, too. And I think there's, the two of them are just so open-hearted in, in, this, in this film, and they, they keep it all tied together. So that, to me, that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, and, and it's just fun to be able to not know what the movie is going to do moment to moment to suddenly be just whisked off to Italy. Here we go, we're in Italy, and then he meets somebody and they come back and he's a completely different person. There's also this melancholy tone that no matter what it's doing stylistically, it's still all very much in the same key. I want to talk a little about the road movie aspects of this. You guys are talking about it as like such a strong representation of a road movie, and I did not feel well, it's that. Not, it's not I, entirely, I yeah, because so much of there's a, just a large chunk of action that's just in Portland. Yeah, and, and, and it seems just more like kind of like hopping from place to place, whereas I consider road movies to be more about the journey. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Mike's narcolepsy where, you know, he just shuts down and then wakes up in a new place takes that element away from it. So I was kind of like struggling to reconcile this as a road movie in my brain because of that. It just didn't have outside of the parts where they're like on the motorcycle. I didn't have that sense of like travel that I associate with with road movies. But maybe that's not a fixed element of road movies. And- well, I don't think it is. I mean, I think a lot of people incorporate that. The Andrea Arnold in American Honey, there's an awful lot of focus specifically on the time spent on the road because that's kind of when your characters get to know each other mm-hmm. is when they're in transit. And that's kind of when you get that lonely road feeling. But I think part of the story here is that Mike's narcolepsy makes him miss the connective tissue mm-hmm. that puts his world together and he just experiences life as this series of vignettes for me it's a road movie because it has that sequence of he's at the house of his brother slash father or whatever's going mm-hmm. on there he's he's in portland he's in italy <laughs> i mean the first trip to portland is just sort of a spontaneous oh by the way while you're passed out we went to portland it, it has that structure of different stops along the way bring out different aspects of your personality mm-hmm. and let you bond in different ways or separate in different ways you're a different person in different places that to me is more what a road movie is about 
So it's a more of an internalized road movie mm-hmm. than an externalized one. The road to self-realization. Well, all road movies are roads to self-realization. <laughs> right. It's a big metaphor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think if you're asking the two key elements, it would be that is sort of the journey as metaphor for personal development, but also the way each new stop allows for a new episode to start. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you go to the quintessential one for me, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, where every uh, mm-hmm. stop is, is like a little different uh, movie into itself. And you get a little bit of that here, too, as well. I mean, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that there are parts of the Shakespearean story here that I don't think work as well. Like, I really kind of love Keanu Reeves' arc as Prince Hal. I love where it ends up. Most of the interaction that he has personally with Bob as Falstaff, I really enjoy. But like the whole the whole sequence with with robbing the strangers for me is just like mm-hmm. a big loose shaggy thing that goes on too long it's and, the most awkwardly staged it's, yeah. the most, it's, it's the one part where you, i thought to myself i'm watching a low budget movie mm-hmm. but it also i just ended up very confused about what we're supposed to make of it about about the characters like keanu reeves sets the whole thing up in order to tease bob and it seems like they spend an awful lot of time running around and screaming in a way that doesn't really communicate much. I mean, the the after story where he's listening, I mean, which has such a Shakespearean feel where he's like listening to Bob tell the story of what happened. That stuff is hilarious. But that like the actual buildup, I don't know. And then the magazine cover thing, I just, I love so much. I love the magazine cover thing. <laughs> Me too. Uh, yeah, I think you can blame Shakespeare if the pacing's off in, in that one sequence you're talking about. Uh, blame Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah. gets everything wrong. <laughs> it probably wasn't even Shakespeare that wrote that sequence. <laughs> Christopher Marlowe. Yes, yeah, so you're getting on my favorite topic oh, now. Oh, oh boy, do I love the, cons- the Shakespeare truthers. That's, uh, <laughs> How do you feel about turkey legs? In brilliant the bunch world? of theorists. We've kind of gotten into Reeves and and Phoenix's performance. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on any of the other performances. What other performances? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Reichert or Keir or Grace Zabriskie or like any of the young hustlers. I think some of those young hustlers, I kind of assume they're actually Portland hustlers Mm -hmm. because – the Mike character was built around a real person that Gus Van Sant knew, and then he originally wanted to have play that role. I kind of assume some of the like the young, unformed kids who are telling their worst street stories. Like I couldn't find any evidence one way or the other, but I kind of assume that those are real people. It doesn't seem scripted, does yeah, it? Yeah, and the, be- the and the best thing I could say about that is that there's not a huge separation between you know, the professional actors and the amateurs in terms of style. Everything is well integrated in that when they're in that environment. We'll talk about this same issue later with with American Honey, but that can be kind of an issue when you mix professional actors with non-professionals is is you just, it's noticeable who has jobs and who doesn't. But um, but I think it also speaks to Van Sant's interest in getting this scene right and getting the subculture right. You know, it's in 1991, I mean, maybe even today, but in 1991, it was a revelation to, to see this entire community that we just would not see otherwise uh, of people who are gathering together in parks and in boarded up hotels and this sort of transient community that was existing in, in parallel with the rest of Portland. I mean, and, and you, it, that comes through especially starkly in the at the very end of the movie during the f- the dual funeral sequence when both sets are just uh, are, are at a complete remove in the same setting. It's presented so sympathetically, too. I mean, these are characters that you had not really seen in movies at this point. If you had, maybe there's sort of the other that shows up to rob the 
good guys in a movie or something. Uh, it's it's not it's not a world that was ever treated with this kind of empathy. If I'm going to kind of poke a hole in the, the movie, though, I will say that the the character of Scott is such a construct mm-hmm. compared to how real. Mike is uh, that when Scott undergoes this transformation, I guess, and becomes and returns to the fold, basically gives up being the the slumming rich kid and becomes perhaps a future politician himself. Whatever his journey to, to get there is not known to us, and I don't know if it resonates as strongly as it needs to to make sense as anything more than just a statement, I guess, about what a rich kid slumming around might do. So I'm going to float that out as a maybe perhaps a flaw in the film. Well, he fell in love. He did, but I, but but, I, I, but he also I, fell in love with a, with a farm girl. Yeah, but I, I think if kind of this movie's whole driving force is like trying to find yourself in someone else or like casting around for someone to, to be with, someone to connect with. I think it's pointed that when we do see Scott reemerge in this kind of new guise, it's with Carmela on his arm, you know, mm-hmm. and she's always there. It's like he's found his connection to the world he was running away from. I'm with Scott, though. I mean, that that falling in love sequence and the way it centers on that sex act that is just sort of a, a series of photographs mm-hmm. that doesn't feel it doesn't feel organic and it doesn't feel emotional. It feels performative. Yeah. L- let me say, like, I don't buy that. <laughs> that I'm just saying, like, like, like structurally, that's. I think what they were going for, but I, I don't feel that relationship at all. Just, I think because of the way it is constructed in this very artificial framework. It's just clear to me too, that, that Van Sant's heart in the heart of the movie is entirely with Mike. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, we haven't mentioned Malanoche, which is another, you know, road movie, <laughs> both Malanoche and Mike's part of my own private eye horror. They're both stories of unrequited desire. Uh, Malanoche about a skid row store clerk's obsession with a Mexican migrant worker. And, and now in Idaho is about a down and out sort of hustler's obsession with this preppy who has a small window of rebellion that he, is going to sort of close on him. But um, I mean, they're, they're obviously personal stories for Van Sant. And, and you can f- feel that that's so much the heart of the movie that it creates a certain imbalance between that part and the Keanu Reeves part that I think is actually in a, in a way more disconcerting than the naturalism and the Shakespeare kind of trying mixing and matching. Well, I mean, I agree. It's just for me, I hadn't seen this film since it came out. And I what I remembered about it was, oh, Keanu Reeves is the bad guy. You know, Keanu Reeves is this basically two faced character who kind of who betrays all of his friends. And rewatching it, I I was just struck by the tenderness he shows Mike and how that tenderness seems to be authentic. And it feels a lot more authentic than his kind of turncoat ways at the end. But it's a very Shakespearean thing. I mean, look at Hamlet to have a character say, you know, this may not be the way I feel, but I am going to perform this. I'm going to perform an act of villainy. I'm going to perform an act of heroism. I'm going to perform the the role of the wastrel who displeases his father. And then when I'm tired of that, I will come back and perform the role of the dutiful son and surprise everybody. I mean, like all of these things are about I'm putting on a mask. And I don't know if Shakespeare did that specifically because he was working with actors in theater and it was sort of an irony or if it was just something that enabled the plot. But everything about what he does here does feel performative. Like he's maybe he's only performing it for himself. Maybe it's for his father. Maybe it's for the world. 
I think a flaw in the film for me is just we don't know what motivates him. Yeah, who, to perform I was, all these was my question. Yeah, the follow up question was who? Who's the real? Who's the audience? Scott? Yeah, no. Who's he, who is he? Well, I mean, well, I, I don't mean, care who he is. I just I I care who he's being, who he is for. I mean, I think the the story of Prince Hal is, is at once triumph and, and tragedy. The triumph is he ascends and becomes a, a great king, and maybe perhaps we can assume that's what's going to happen with uh, Scott here. But there's something heroic about becoming a great towering figure, but at the same time, the tragedy is he leaves behind all these friendships. I mean, he leaves behind this this community, and and you know he leaves behind. There's a part of himself behind as well. I mean, I mean Falstaff dies at least you know is, is, is heading in that direction and and, and uh, we see that here and and it's you know he leaves part of himself behind as well where where this life of freedom and, and lack of responsibility and and just these easy friendships that he makes uh, along the way I mean, and the focus is so much on mike here rather than scott but i think you can kind of see that play on this background I, I i think he really does feel for Mike, but it comes a point in his life where he can't express those feelings or, or even really entertain those feelings anymore. But why? Because if there was a sense that he was turned off by Mike's revelation around the campfire, if there was a, a feeling that he was repulsed or angered, that would make the character make so much sense. And that's just, that's not in the story at all. I think it's just sort of the tragic inevitability of him growing up and assuming responsibility. And I think that it's, there's no way a kid from that background is going to live there forever. And also the absence of a bridge between those two worlds too, right? Mm. Well, uh, speaking of all the focus being on Mike, we haven't focused, I think, nearly enough on Mike. I'm really <laughs> curious what you guys make of the narcolepsy as a, a story device. I mean, apparently Van Sant put it in because he knew somebody who looked like he was always falling asleep. <laughs> but that's a really specific choice to make for the story. I think Scott laid out why it works so well really early on. Which is, this is a character who, even without narcolepsy, is is vulnerable and just sort of blowing in the wind wherever wherever life takes him and wherever fortune can take him. And, and to make that so concrete by giving him narcolepsy, I think was a really interesting choice. The end of this movie, I find yeah. completely devastating. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the vulnerability is the key. And, and the, the end of the movie is so devastating because he could not be in a more vulnerable spot. He's in the middle of nowhere. He's lying down on the road and he has no friends and, and he gets his shoes taken away from him and his, uh, what, his wallet probably, or no, his backpack his is backpack. taken, right. And, um, you know, and then another car comes and <laughs> scans him for more stuff, right? Well, no, well we he don't know. picks him up it's, and it's, takes him away. Yeah. Right, it's completely open-ended. This could be someone, this could be the person that saves oh, his okay, life. Oh, okay, I misremembered. Yeah. This could be the person that saves a life or he could end up, uh, you know, in a ditch It could somewhere. be Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fan oh, theory. Oh, that, wow. Okay. I, I, Did you seriously, like, think that at any point? I did because of the way the figure picked Mike up in that like wow. cradling fashion that is exactly how we see Scott pick him up. Oh my God, you've blown the whole thing wide open. <laughs> that, that never occurred to me. I mean, how does it fit into the Pixar universe? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, Tommy West. Well, that would be a really crazy thing to make yeah, ambiguous. I, 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 it, it is ambiguous and purposely so, but I, I do think that it is trying to make you think that that could be a possibility. I don't think you're crazy because it, it never occurred to me until like five minutes before you said it. Like if it could be anyone, maybe it could be Scott. Oh my God, my mind is blown. <laughs> I can't go on. We have to stop the podcast. <laughs> we do. Actually, actually I, feel like, I feel like going back and looking at the clip, it's like <laughs> this is a Pruder film now. <laughs> I, I, I seriously think we might want to look at that. <laughs> 
just just because my my first thought is like, what if you can see that like from a distance that he's blonde or something like I, that? I don't. I think it's it's coded in such a way yeah. that you'll you'll never know. No, because I was thinking it in the moment and studying it to see if it was for certain Scott, and there's no way to know for okay. certain so that it is or isn't. It's not. It's I've not clear. Right it's, it's not like Play, he has a everybody. shock of red hair or anything. Well, okay. I, I said I couldn't go on, but I have to go on because before we wrap up, I just I got to ask one thing. What the hell is up with the falling orgasm house? <laughs> I got an answer to this. It's a broken home, Tasha. <laughs> so you see, it's a metaphor. My brain! I yep, can't take is. any more of these revelations, It literally is a, broken, it is a broken home. I mean, the, yes, you know what? Is, Scott's is, in that home. This is a, this is a, uh, this is a young wait, man who's... Uh, that is ambiguous. You don't, you don't see through the window. You can't oh tell there's God, nobody Scott's, in there. Scott's, you're you talking get, about you me. Get, I did too for a second. You get salmon swimming upstream to find their home. You get... Home movies? A road stretching out to nowhere, but perhaps a home on the horizon. I mean, it's... Yeah, I don't think it's... We can crack this code, guys. Broken home. But why is it associated with orgasm? I think that's just. I think it's just where his your your, your brain uh, goes to its primal state in, in the midst of orgasm. Let me tell you about the male <laughs> orgasm, everybody. No, it's it, it's it's. Uh, so I, I think that's just where he, you know, he's just a drifter, and it's, you know, he's just off into space, and that this is uh, a nice little poetic image that Van Sant provides for us. It's one type of fleeting pleasure being associated with a more permanent sort of pleasure. Mm-mm. I like Man, that. I mean, I I got I got the salmon thing. I got the road thing. I got the home movies thing, but you guys have you guys have changed this movie for me. Orgasm House Rated <laughs> R. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In our episode about Don't Breathe and Wait Until Dark, I brought up the confusion reviewers seem to have had over a plot point concerning Rocky, the female lead in Don't Breathe. Early on in the film, we see her with a young girl who she clearly wants to rescue from a bad family living situation. But it's unclear whether the little girl is Rocky's daughter or her little sister. One of our listeners wrote in to say that the girl should be Rocky's daughter because that makes the story better. Scott? Ben writes, assuming the little girl in Rocky's house is her daughter, it's easy to imagine how early parenthood has impacted Rocky's life. It's clearly Rocky's obligation to her daughter that keeps this 20-something woman in a decrepit home with an abusive family, which she'd otherwise would have left several years ago. When the blind man says he will lock Rocky in his basement (laughs) and force her to bear his child, she's being threatened with the nightmare version of the life she already lives, that of a captive mother. Much like Rosemary's baby, Don't Breathe has turned a young woman's mundane anxieties about parenthood into a larger-than-life horror, albeit one tinged with the vulgarity of exploitation cinema instead of Polanski's wry and artistic touch. Viewing Rocky's experiences through that lens also adds another dimension to her relationship with the blind man. They are both parents, and they're both convinced anything can be justified if it's on behalf of their child. The difference lies in how they express that conviction. The blind man uses it to fuel violence against others. Rocky uses it to endure the violence committed against herself until she finally gains the upper hand. If that is Rocky's daughter, Don't Breathe deserves some credit not just for its thrills, but also for how well it weaves the theme of parenthood into what would otherwise be a shallow horror narrative. 
that is a very interesting letter, yes? That is a very interesting letter. I, I'm i always dubious of the text does not support this, but it would be better if this was true, so I'm going to assume it was true kind of theories. Yeah. But this is a really good defense well, for I mean, this theory. Well, I just, I just, it never occurred to me just because she just seems too young to have a kid that old. Yeah, that was my thinking, too. Uh, but, 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 but it's great. If I mean, if it, it, this, this whole theory is uh, makes the film so much richer. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If it's if true, woe if true. If they as they as they say on the internet, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the the concept of them both being parents and both being able to relate in that way to to doing something criminal for their child. Mm-hmm. It really does make the film more interesting. It does, yeah, and that falls apart if they're sisters, doesn't it? I think Fetty Alvarez should go back and recut it with a little subtitle that said, "This girl is her daughter." Just in one scene, just so we know that is. is I think a little something more subtle, like an like overdubbed dialogue would probably be good. Hey, my daughter, how are you? <laughs> Boy, it sure does suck to be in this house where you are abused. Uh, I would like well, to the rescue daughter, you from the daughter it. Could say, "Mom," right? <laughs> she's not at that age though. She's a little younger, so she, yeah, so she, she seems to be, be like, like seven or so. Maybe she'd be more like, "I love you, mom." Aww. I, I mean, I haven't seen Don't Breathe, and I wasn't in on that discussion. I'm just butting in here about you guys uh, thinking that Rocky is too young. How old is does that character present? Like, I mean, it, it seems totally feasible 22, that she... So she could be a teen mother. Like, yeah. she could, really? I, I thought of her as more like maybe 19 or yeah. 20. And like, the little girl seems to be maybe seven. And that's not biologically impossible, but it really changes the story if she was a mother at like 13 or 14. In a, and it changes the story in ways that should probably be spelled out. Well, but, I will never see the movie to find out for myself. So <laughs> It's only mind-numbingly terrifying, Genevieve. Come on. We'll Although I did see a picture of Stephen Lang on, on Twitter last night with his chihuahua and an I'm with her uh, uh, sticker. <laughs> it is the most adorable thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw made, that too. Retroactively, we made the movie just a tiny bit less scary, I think. <laughs> Well, moving on to our recent Westworld versus Westworld discussion, we got some early feedback from a listener named Matthew. He writes, in your last episode, you're exploring the context of 1973's Westworld and what it might have to say about what was going on in the culture at the time. You didn't mention it, but right away I thought of the Vietnam War. This movie would have been produced and released during the last few years of America's involvement in Vietnam. I think there might have been a lot of parallels to explore there how we overestimated our own capabilities, how we found ourselves fighting an enemy that didn't behave like we thought they should, how we found ourselves in a situation where anyone could be an enemy, and how the only way we survived is through sheer mutual attrition. I think even the choice to focus on the ideal of the old Hollywood Western, complete with an unnecessary barroom brawl, calls to mind how Hollywood sold us on the war using the living embodiment of the Western, John Wayne and the Green Berets. I think that is an interesting thought. I think our listeners are skunking us on analysis. <laughs> yeah, sort of. I mean, I mean, I actually had not considered that parallel and probably should because it's just Vietnam would have been so present in the culture at the time that it was kind of a void not making something about Vietnam and, and anything with violence in it, at least. But on the other hand, I, I almost feel like it's like in the early 90s when everything was an AIDS metaphor, you know, mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, it, it, almost to the point where where. You know, any movie whatsoever would be presented as an, as an AIDS metaphor, which probably, you know, somewhat parallel in the sense that it was something that was on people's minds all the time. I think you can see something like Basic Instinct now and not think of it framed in terms of AIDS, but that might just be a matter of forgetfulness and just not seeing this as a Vietnam parallel might have been a matter of forgetfulness or just not having been alive at the time or, or <laughs> conscious at the time uh, on our part as well. Yeah, it, I mean, it's such an interesting thought because, like, once you start looking at that parallel, you start 
saying things like, oh, well, you know, the quagmire of Vietnam and not being able to get out of it no matter how much we wanted to. And the parallel between that and the idea of like this implacable foe who's kind of alien to you, but it just keeps going long after you you think that you should have won. And the only way to win that fight is to retreat. Like that all seems very apt. At the same time, it's hard to imagine a setting more distanced from the jungles of Vietnam than these incredibly arid landscapes with nothing in them except these, you know, these raw red rocks, uh, like the, the caverns and the deserts. So, I mean, I'm not certainly not saying that every Vietnam analogy has to take place in the jungle, but I, I'm certainly not surprised that we didn't make that connection. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Matthew is suggesting it's a direct metaphor, just that maybe the Vietnam War was informing some of the anxieties we that we see in the film. And like we talked a lot about sort of the technological paranoia in, in that movie, but he's kind of honing in on a different sort of paranoia that is maybe a little more backgrounded, but I think it's still a very plausible influence to cite here. Well, fair enough. You guys have given us a lot to think about. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in American Honey, a journey across the American heartland with a British director who is coming to know the landscape for the first time. It's a story about life on the road made by a cast and crew who actually lived on the road and who, as the soundtrack keeps reminding us, found love (laughs) in a hopeless place. Okay, sort of. Like everything else in American Honey, it's a pretty troubled love, but we'll get into that soon enough. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to make this recording studio a little more immaculate with our Dutch boy cleanser and our scrub brushes. Stand by. (laughs) 